You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture passage today is John 14. John 14, 15 through 31. Let's read together. Well, I'll read. You listen. (laughs) If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father." Rise, let us go from here. Well, everybody, good morning. It is good to see you and worship with you today. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in John chapter 14, as you just heard. So go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't yet. John chapter 14 through 17 is what theologians, commentators call the final discourse or the farewell speech of Jesus. This is Jesus' last words to his disciples and his friends before he departs and ascends to heaven to not be seen again until he returns. And thus far in this speech, these last and final words that he gives his friends, he has made some incredible promises. And that's what these are. That's really what Jesus is imparting to his friends and to you and I, his promises to hold on to until he returns. He's promised a great and final reunion in heaven all of us together as a family with Father, Son, and Spirit, that promise has been given to us, this reunion. But also, we have been promised that if we ask in Jesus' name for the Father's glory, for God to be with us and bless us and give us what we need in the mission of Jesus while on earth, He will do it. 
We've been given some incredible promises so far. And if you go to verse 15, Jesus starts with this phrase. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And if you read on your own the next several chapters, you would see that this phrase or like phrases like it pop up over and over again. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's sort of the spine to this whole entire teaching unit. And it might seem strange, like why would Jesus have that be sort of the, the controlling idea to this entire teaching? And it's, here's why. Jesus is about to leave and be absent. You can't see him. You can't touch him. He's not there. But if you love the unseen Jesus, you will trust in what he says, do what he says, build your life on what he says in the meantime. So we can't see him. He's, he's absent. He's departed and he's going to be at the Father, at the right hand of the Father. But if you love the unseen Jesus, you will trust him. Live a life of trust in him, which means claiming his promises and believing his promises and building your life around his promises. And we have an incredible promise today that Jesus gives us. Jesus promises to send us the Holy Spirit while he is gone. So if you love Jesus, you will embrace the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the two points for today that we're going through is, first, we must understand who the Holy Spirit is. Understand the Holy Spirit. And I, I'm not going to teach everything that could be said about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're just sticking to this passage today, but that'll be enough for us. That'll be all our minds can take probably. So we're going to understand the Holy Spirit, and we are going to learn how to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Okay, so uh, before I, before I uh, dig into this, I was excited. I was about to do it. But let's pause and pray and, and come to the Father now. Lord God Almighty, you are welcome here. And we open our hearts to you. And we ask that your spirit would do his job and that we would yield ourselves to the spirit now to do his job, to convict us of truth and lead us into truth, to convict us of unrighteousness, to reveal the Son to us. Lord, we ask that the Spirit in this time together would do the work to apply this truth that we're about to study to our hearts in a deep and meaningful way. Lord, we come to you now and we confess our guilt and our iniquity uh, that we carry around with us the reality that we are fallen, have fallen short of your glory, have transgressed your law, have even done good things without knowing it, totally motivated by sin. And so, Lord, we just come to you confessing our absolute dependence upon you. We need you, God, to save us and then to clean us and to consecrate us. We ask that you would do that today. You make us more consecrated unto you. You move us deeper into union with you, deeper into surrender to you. God, give us understanding of this word, of your words, so that we may fellowship with the Holy Spirit and be transformed by him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's understand the Holy Spirit. I hope that you guys drank some coffee, okay? It's going to be great. Verses 16 and 17. Pick it up and read with me. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What first I want to spend some time studying and thinking about, what I want you to notice first is Jesus says, I will ask the Father who will give you the Spirit. 
So right here, just in this one verse, we have the explicit articulation of what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity. And you have to try, at least, (laughs) to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Because if you misunderstand the Trinity, our faith really does unravel. Like, if you don't believe that God is one God in three persons, like a community in and of himself, then you will believe in a deficient God because then why did God create the world and why did God create us? A God that that isn't a trinity, isn't a community in himself, creates because he needs, because he needs praise, he needs worship, he needs community, whatever it might be. That's a deficient God, a God is not worthy of worship. But also, if you don't believe in the trinity or understand the trinity, then you don't understand the gospel, we don't understand our salvation because all persons of the Trinity are deeply, deeply necessarily involved in our salvation and in our, in our sanctification. So really, the whole, our whole faith unravels if we don't understand the Trinity. So let's go ahead and try that. Let's try to understand the Trinity. What does it mean when we say that God is Trinity, that we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? In God, let's start negative, there are not three distinct centers of self-consciousness, each with its own intellect and its own will. God is one being with three persons who are equally and eternally divine, possessing the same essence and the same will. Totally one. Let's go ahead and and, uh, quote some church fathers, some uh, theologians throughout time. They might be helpful. They might be able to explain it in a way that that helps us grasp this really hard truth or reality. So St. Augustine, early church father, I have it on the screen. Here's a quote for you. He, wa- he references uh, ourselves. He says, look to yourself, your own human ontology, like your own components of yourself to understand the Trinity. He says this, to be, to know, and to will. Each of us are, we know, and we will. To be, to know, and to will. He says, for I am, I exist, I know, like I have self-awareness and consciousness, and I will, which means I bring into fruition or reality the things that are in my imagination. I am and know and will. And then what he's going to show is how all these things kind of work together and overlap. He says, I am knowing and willing. I know myself to be and to will. I will to be and to know. In these three, then, let each person discern how inseparable a life there is in each one of us, one life, one mind, one essence, yet distinction all at once. Um, if you don't understand this, that's okay. It's, on the, it's online, okay? You can look at it later, but go ahead and try to listen anyway. John Owen, okay? John Owen, a uh, theologian from a few hundred years ago, he says this, the Father, Son, and Spirit have not distinct wills. They are one God, and God's will is one as being an essential property of his nature. Like, this is just who he is. That's what he's saying. Father, Son, Spirit, not each with their own agenda, sharing one will. John of Damascus, early church defender of the Trinity, he says this, For there is one essence, one goodness, one power, one will, one energy, one authority, one and the same. I repeat, not three resembling each other. But the three subsistences have one and the same movement. They're unified. For each of them is related closely to the other as to itself. That is to say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one in all respects. One essence, same essence, same divinity, all eternal, sharing the same will. 
So when we come to this verse in verse 16 where Jesus goes to the Father, and he says, I'm going to ask the Father to give the Spirit, and the Father will give the Spirit. When he does that, Jesus, uh, he's not doing that in inferiority to the Father. Because the Son is equal to the Father. He is God. Rather, the Son, what he's doing there in asking the Father, he's relating to the Father as a son would relate to a father. He has always obeyed the Father and enacted the Father's plans in perfect and strong submission. In the Father, okay? The Father's going to say yes to Jesus' Jesus's ask here. He's going to grant Jesus' wish because the Father has always consulted the Son and agreed with the Son because they share the same will. So, it would be wrong to think that Jesus has to like strong-arm God somehow into granting this wish. It would be wrong to think that Jesus is subordinate, weak, or inferior to God. They possess the same will, just as they possess the same eternal nature, divine essence. That will is achieved as they relate to one another in their roles. Now, one point that I really want to point out that I think is really crucial that we understand is that the Father... Son and Spirit have always been Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not as if God has, is three persons and we know that because he enters into history as Father, Son, and Spirit. He has always been Father, Son, and Spirit, and we know that because he's revealed himself in time and history. Which means then that we should be paying very close attention to God's actions in history, God's actions in his story, because they show the relational dynamics between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the closer attention we pay to God's revelation of himself as Father, Son, and Spirit in history, it teaches us and informs us who each of these persons are. So go back to verse 13. John chapter 14, verse 13. You can see now the Son's relation to the Father. He says in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, he's talking to the disciples here, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So you see that the Son, his greatest aim in his existence, what he is so passionate about, is to glorify the Father. And so as the eternal Son, God the Son has always loved making the Father smile, making his Father proud. And the Son, or excuse me, the Father's relation to the Son, it's seen in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says this, when, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, lift up, uh, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what we see here is the Father relates to the Son. The Father glorifies the Son and entrusts his authority to the Son. So as the eternal Father, he has always celebrated the Son and worked with the Son and entrusted the Son. And then in our passage, back to chapter 14, we saw that Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the Spirit. And so now we're talking about the Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, uh, proceeds, moves outward from the Father and the Son to accomplish what the Father and Son are, are uh, what pleases them. And so as the eternal Spirit of God, He has always proceeded forth from the Father and the Son. You could think of Him as the overflow of life and power that comes from the fellowship of Father and Son. 
You could think of him as the creative power of the Father and Son's work together. Uh, In fact, uh, the word spirit in your Bibles, Holy Spirit, right? That could just as easily and rightfully be translated as breath. Holy breath, God's breath. And I think that's interesting and important to think about from time to time because that shows us this picture that it's like this conversation between father and son uh, actively and purposely moves out beyond them in the person of the Spirit. It's like the breath, like the words that they have spoken that move out beyond them in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit always proceeds, moves forward from the Father and the Son to accomplish their will that He shares, what pleases them. And so this is why in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of your Father, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of His Son. And in Romans 8, they're combined, and He's called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son to bring to fruition what pleases them. He shares their will. So all in all, okay, all in all, the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit have freely and gladly operated in relation to one another as Father, Son, and Spirit. One essence, one mind, one will. Why does this, this matter? Why is this important? It matters for a lot of reasons, but here's how Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, Uh, talks about it. He emphasizes a really important aspect of this reality of the Trinity. He says this, it's on the screen. None in the Trinity, none of these persons, demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice our choreography within it. It literally means to dance or flow around. So this means that Father, Son, and Spirit, before time began, in eternity past, have always been in self-giving love relationship with one another, which means this. God is the most happy being alive because in and of himself, he has everything he wants and everything that he would ever need. There is no deficiency in God at all whatsoever because he is triune. That can be said of none of us. No human besides Christ has ever walked on the face of the earth. God alone, triune God alone is totally self-sufficient. Now, Wouldn't it be amazing to be in a relationship with someone like that who has no flaws, no weaknesses, no insecurities, will not smother you to get something from you, but is totally in and of themselves complete? To be in a relationship with someone like that is incredible. That's not somebody that is useful to you. That's not somebody that's instrumental to you. That's just somebody who is beautiful to you. That's just somebody you want to simply enjoy. For who they are. So God is triune. He is Trinity. The Spirit specifically relates to the Father and the Son as the person who proceeds from them to accomplish their good pleasure. Now, as the Spirit moves outward towards us, what does He do? What is the Spirit's job, task, activity as He moves outward towards us? And the main idea in verses 16 and 17 is He is our helper or our counselor or our guide. He helps us. 
He guides us. He counsels us. That's what he does for us. And you'll notice that in verse, six, uh, in si- in verse 16, Jesus says, I will send you another helper. You see that in your Bibles if you're looking at them? I will send you another helper. Now, this is pretty cool. That means that another helper, meaning Jesus is the first helper. He was the first helper, the first guide, the first counselor. But when Jesus is absent with the Father, that means that he's going to send another helper in his stead, in his place. So it's shocking to say what this just like basically straightforwardly means, but we should take this to mean that the Spirit is the same resource of comfort and love and guidance that Jesus was to his disciples. Because of the Spirit's arrival, it's as if Jesus is walking with us at all times, just like he was walking with these 12 men throughout Palestine. And so that's why later on in chapter 16, we're going to read that Jesus says, it's better that I depart, truly. It's better that I leave so that the helper can come, so that the counselor can come. Why would that be better? Why would it be better that Jesus leaves? It's because Jesus was in one location at all times, but when he leaves and the Spirit comes in his stead, God's presence, the Spirit of Jesus, will be in every single believer all throughout the globe. His presence will not be in one location, but everywhere, guiding and counseling and helping. So, how does the Spirit help us? How does the Spirit counsel us? That's his job as he proceeds from the Father and Son. At least in this passage, that's what he, he is described as doing. Well, Jesus, I think, helpfully teaches us what it means to have the Spirit's help when he qualifies him as the Spirit of truth. Do you see that in verse 16? The Spirit of truth might be in verse 17. The Spirit of truth. That's how he guides us, counsels us, and helps us. He supernaturally presses the truth deep into our hearts. That's how he helps us. He takes God, this, the abstract truth, this cognitive truth that we all know and have heard of our whole lives as Christians, and he makes it a part of our DNA. He crams it down into our hearts so that we're persuaded by it. So in Romans 8, we are told that the Spirit of God uh, is the Spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, That means that, that our identity, who are we? If you're a Christian, who are you? You are a child of God, beloved you remember how, how the Father shouts from heaven over Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? The Spirit ministers that truth to your heart constantly because you're a child of God. You're His beloved. Okay? You're the object of His fatherly affection. Ephesians 1 describes all of us like this. You ready? Chosen, loved, predestined, adopted as sons, redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace. Uh, those spiritual truths... Like those identity markers are branded on our hearts because it says in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is our seal. He seals these things as a deposit of our future inheritance. He seals these things in the present to to put them on our hearts in an undeniable way and press these things into our being to remind us of what is true, that you are loved, that you are delighted in, that you are a child that he is your father. And that's your identity. That's your life now. That's the Spirit's job as he moves outward from the Father and Son to remind you of what is true. It's like everything the Father declares to the Son about you and everything the Son declares to the Father about you, the Spirit takes that conversation and puts it within your heart and reinforces it down deep into your heart to give you assurance of who you are. 
incredible. This is why the Spirit is such a gift and why the Spirit is such a help, because we need to be reminded of who we really are. (laughs) Now, let me tell you this. It's possible to quench the Spirit. It's possible to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Look at verse 17. Jesus tells us how this happens. He continues and says, the world, which in the Gospel of John is a negative idea, it's, it's like a word that's, which, which is associated with unbelief and hostility and opposition. The world cannot receive him, the Spirit, you know, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Then he talks to his disciples and says, you know him though, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now what's interesting here is Jesus contrasts the world with his disciples. He says the world cannot receive the Spirit because they have refused him already, but the disciples will receive him because they have already acknowledged him. They have already witnessed him. But the question that you should naturally and rightfully have is, how is that possible? Because the Spirit hasn't been given yet. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes at Pentecost, but that's not happened yet. The Spirit's not indwelling anybody yet. So how is it, how could it be true? How could this be true that the world has been rejecting the Spirit and the disciples are going to receive the Spirit? How could that be true? The Spirit's not been given yet. It's because the Spirit has been present all along in Jesus, through Jesus and His life and His ministry. But the world could not detect the Spirit or receive the Spirit because they could not believe in Jesus. But the disciples will receive the Spirit because they have received Jesus already. Jesus is teaching that you know you will reject the Spirit or quench the Spirit if you treat the Spirit the same way Jesus was treated. We read the gospel accounts. We read how people opposed Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus, doubted Jesus, walked away from Jesus. That kind of uh, activity of unbelief can be pointed at the Spirit as well. So, In John 3.19, it says this, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. The people of the world loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So why did people reject Jesus? It's because his claims and his teachings and his way of life that he modeled and invited us into his vision for life, like at best it was inconvenient and at worst it was outrageous. He calls us, Jesus calls us into a kind of life that we just rather avoid. It requires humility before God, death to self, service to others. So the darkness, like living in sin, living in addiction, living in unbelief, living in hopelessness, can actually be preferable because the way of Jesus is just highly inconvenient and outrageous sometimes. It's just a challenge to life as we know it, life as we have built. So it's very possible to quench the Spirit, reject the Spirit, and resist the Spirit as long as you prefer the darkness. Just live in sin, live in the addictions, live in the instant gratification of the world, live according to pleasure, all those kind of things that the darkness offers and and never delivers on ultimately. But let's be honest, it's just easier sometimes to live in the darkness. So instead of inviting the Spirit to do His work, we settle for sin. Because we think that that'll be a more pleasing life, that'll be a more fun life, a more free life. But let me tell you this, that giving yourself to the Spirit, 
Letting the Spirit of God do His job in your life to comfort, counsel, lead, guide, to impress God's truth in your heart, who you really are. Allowing Him to do His work in your life is not the way to restriction. It's not the way to like being suffocated. It is actually the way counterintuitively to freedom and to fullness of life. So instead of rejecting the Spirit, we have to fellowship with Him and yield to Him. So let's talk about that now. We've understood who the Holy Spirit is. Now let's talk about fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. Let's pick up and read in verses 18 and 19. Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. So the promise that he gives to the apostles and to us is the Spirit will permanently remain with us so that we are never alone. This is a promise. This is an amazing promise that we are never alone, that we have constant confirmation within us that we are not orphans, that we're not abandoned, that God always loves us and always has his eye on us and favors us. There are two times in the New Testament that we are told the Spirit prays. And the Spirit always prays in accompaniment with us. Two times, Romans 8, 15 and 16. I've mentioned it before. I'll read it to you now. It says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, here's the prayer, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit prays with us, almost like um, persuading our spirit to pray along with him. God, you're my dad. God, you're my father. God, you love me. God, you delight in me because I'm your child. The Spirit prays that. What else does the Spirit pray? One other time in the, in the New Testament, we're told, Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride, that's you and I, say, come. That's it. That's his other prayer. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Be near me. So this, the work, the fellowship, the, the reality of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is the constant provoking within us, the constant longing within us, God, you've said I'm not an orphan, you've said I'm not abandoned, you've said I'm not alone and on my own. Make that true. Let me feel that. Let me know your nearness. Let me know your presence. Augustine, early church father Augustine, who I mentioned before, he, just, he, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit's called a flame, the flame of God, the fire of God. Now, what does a flame do? It ascends. It lifts up things into the sky, right? So the Spirit within us, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, that means He constantly is lifting our spirits to God, constantly ascending our attention and our longings to God. And so we're constantly praying with Him, God, be near. God, remind me that you're my Father. God, draw close to me. Now, look at the result of this indwelling. Look at the result of this work of the Holy Spirit in 20 through 24. Jesus says this, in that day, when the Spirit comes, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, as I'm reading, notice what the result is. Like, notice what Jesus is promising as a result of the Holy Spirit. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So this, this disciple Judas, he doesn't get what Jesus is saying still. He thinks Jesus is going to establish a kingdom 
is confused how Jesus is going to establish this earthly kingdom, yet everyone's going to miss it. So Jesus responds to him and says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So did you catch the result of the spirits indwelling there? For those who have received the spirit, for those who love God and obey his commandments, what happens? It says, Jesus says, he promises that we will be loved by the Father, loved by the Son. The Son will be revealed to us, and we will be the home of the Father and the Son. That's incredible. Loved by God, loved by the Son. He makes his home within us. And listen, this is not theoretical language. This is not just doctrinal formulations. Like, this is experiential. We can know this at an emotive, personal, undeniable, subjective level that God makes His home in us and He loves us and the Son loves us. The Spirit does that work in us. It's like the adoration and warmth in the gaze of the Father on the Son and the honor and delight of the gaze of the Son on the Father is turned towards us and now we are the object of that gaze. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son rests upon us and in so doing carries into our hearts the love shared between Father and Son. Remember, our Spirit, along with the Spirit, groans and longs, God be near, come to me. I don't want to be an orphan. I want to be a child. And the Father responds to that longing and that cry and says, I'm coming near. Here's my love. I've made my home in you. You are mine. This is what the Spirit does to us. He confirms in our heart in a personal way that we are loved by God himself. Now think about this. Verse 28, go down there with me. Jesus says this later on. He says, you heard me say that, say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, disciples, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He's saying, Jesus is saying that the Father's presence in heaven is where we'd all want to be. <laughs> That's life. That's the glory that the Son is looking forward to having returned to him. So Jesus looked forward to his return to heaven because life in the Father's presence is greater than anything on earth or in this present age. Psalm 16 describes the Father's presence like this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63 describes God's love like this. Your love is better than life. Psalm 73 describes heaven like this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is none I desire besides you as if God is the great prize in heaven. So the result of the indwelling of the Spirit is that now, in our very hearts, is a tether to the presence of the Father and the Son. And with that connection unbroken, there is constant influx of heaven's atmosphere into our hearts. He brings us into heaven's atmosphere and brings heaven's ha atmosphere into us. The love between Father and the Son and Son descends upon us. This is living in the Trinity. This is living in the Spirit, being constantly confirmed deep in your soul that God loves you like this. Heaven's love being poured into your heart and into your life. Remember the dance of the Trinity? 
the early Greek fathers talking about the dance of the Trinity, how there was this selfless love, this orbiting around one another in constant giving and receiving, this incredible explosion of love within God Himself. We can get caught up in that. That's what this means. Like we can get raptured into that dance of the Trinity. Colossians 3.3, great verse. Meditate on this verse. It says this, For you have died. Meaning, when you're born again, when the Spirit dwells you, takes up residence in you, the old self is gone, a new self is born again. And after that happens, look what he says. And your life is hidden or found with Christ in God. Meaning, that explosion and fireworks of love that is pulsating between Father and Son, Christ in God, we are invited to that life source. We, are, we, we can be located in the middle of the gaze between Father and Son. We can be in the middle of the embrace between Father and Son. We can get caught up in the dance of God. And let me tell you, we were made for the dance. There is nothing else in life that is going to satisfy your soul. There is nothing in life that is going to give you fullness of life and make life worth living besides this dance, besides this walking with the triune God. We were made by God for God. So, how do we fellowship? How do we, like, practically speaking, get caught up in this dance? At least in this passage. Let's look at it. So, I want to read the next paragraph for you. But I want to, uh, before I read, I want to tell you what it means so that you're not confused. Uh, Jesus is about to teach his disciples that when the Spirit comes, he will illuminate their minds by the Spirit so that they can read the Old Testament and they can understand the Old Testament in light of the events of Jesus' life and ministry and resurrection. That it's all going to make sense and come together and be interconnected by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so what's about to happen, his arrest, his crucifixion, the seeming defeat of the hour, it shouldn't take them off guard. It shouldn't surprise them because this has been the plan all along. The Spirit is going to teach them that, illuminate that for them. So look what Jesus says, verses 25 through 31. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, though. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So this has direct, specific, exclusive application only to the apostles. Like they uniquely were supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit to have all of the teachings and claims and life events of Jesus, have like supernatural recollection of those things, and then have insight into all of Scripture, and then formulate what we have now as the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus for the church. That's what Jesus is saying is, is going to be um, a specific gift to them by the Holy Spirit. But he promises them what? 
illumination by the Holy Spirit into the Word, He promises that that will give them peace. Not like the world's peace, His own peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So we might not get like apostolic inspiration. We don't get that. But we do get illumination by the Holy Spirit into their writings so that we may have conferred to our hearts the peace of Jesus and move through this world resilient and durable and powerful, not shaken by what's happening in our lives, not shaken by surprises that happen, but move through the life confident in the love of God for us as we take up the Scripture and read it, though. Because Jesus, his great landing point, his great destination of this unit of teaching is the Holy Spirit. He guides us. He's the helper. He's the counselor. He reminds us of who we are. But he does that first and foremost by your reading of the Bible. Because that's when the Spirit first and foremost works. To illuminate our minds to understand the depths of Scripture. Now I know most of us are believers in here and know a lot of Bible We've heard tons of sermons, but most of us don't read the Bible. We know we're supposed to. I, I know we're spo- we know we're supposed to, but we don't. And so here's my question for you. I don't mean this in a judgmental way. I just mean this to like inspire you and persuade you. How's that going for you? How's life going for you not in the Word? How's that feel for you? What's that experience like for you? Do you find yourself more resilient, less anxious, less tempted, more victorious, more bold, more trusting, less in need of control? Probably not, right? If you're not in the Word, you are removing the main source that the Spirit uses to do His powerful work in you. I'll tell you what, guys, the most powerful influence in my life has been Scripture. My life has been changed by the Spirit's work through the Word of God. Uh, When I was in middle school, my friends and I started a weekly meeting on Saturday mornings where we would come together and we'd just read the Bible. We had read the Bible all week. We'd just come and share our devotions. Like as a junior high kid, we, a few of us, got together and just shared what we we were reading. And we were so wrong on interpreting stuff. We like took out applications that were probably like heretical. I don't even know. But you know what happened? That's where I got my craving for the Word. That's where, that's where like the thirst for God's word was conceived in me. And like I said, we were naive. We did not know anything, but we were in the word. And you know how Paul talks about um, uh, that we were like infants who crave the pure spiritual milk? That's what we were. We were just like babies crying out for just sustenance and nourishment. And we didn't have it all right, but we were in the word because we were excited about the word thirsting for the Word, craving in the Word. And I'll tell you what, the Spirit worked. He did great things in us and through us in that time. But you know what? In my own life, what happened? That's where I would say my call to ministry happened. As I fell in love with God's Word, that's when I knew I didn't want to give my life to anything else. The Spirit works through the Word. And then as I entered college, 
in the early years of ministry, my Bible reading matured. It became more intellectual, like an intellectual pursuit. I wanted to understand what I was reading, how it fit into the whole, canop- the, the whole tapestry of Scripture. I wanted to practice biblical theology. I wanted to know how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. So I started reading commentaries. I started listening to, to smart people on podcasts and sermons. I started reading books. I just wanted to know how how the whole story fit together. I got my master's, I got my doctorate in theology. It's been an intellectual pursuit for a while now. But I'll tell you what, in the last year, I hope I've reached this point, and this is where I stay, now that God has given me a thirst for his word and given me knowledge of his word. Now I'll tell you what, I read God's word now out of sheer and utter dependence, desperation, because there is a night and day difference in my life when I take up God's word and let the Holy Spirit do his work in that time versus when I do not. In the last year, probably because of being a dad and having kids and whatever else is going on in life, I am just way too uncomfortable with how quick to anger I am, how impatient I am, how anxious I get when I don't feel like I'm in control, how I don't trust God, and I'm quick to doubt that He is good. I mean, there's so many deficiencies in my life when there's when there shouldn't be. I mean, I have like a doctorate in theology, yet I feel more weak than ever before. Like I'm more in touch with the fact that even the good things, and I would say even especially the good things I do, if you get down to the bedrock motivation behind them, it's still wrong. <laughs> like I just need God to do work in me. I need the Spirit of God to transform me, and He will do it through His Word. He does it in His Word first and foremost. And so I'm telling you, if you are not collapsing into Scripture, desperate for the Spirit to reveal God's truth so that you can be conformed to Christ and then move out into mission for God in the world, then what are we doing then? What's life going to be like? How's it going to go for us? We're going to struggle. We're going to struggle. So let me close now. We're closing with some exhortations. I want to give you some exhortations. If you want what the promised Spirit brings, you must read. You must read. You must be committed to reading the Word. And I know some of you want to read, but you don't. And there's just a breakdown there, like, like you have this desire, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen in practice. You have this desire, but it doesn't, it doesn't materialize in your life. Let me ask you a question to motivate you here. Would you rather be at the mercy of the world or the mercy of God? Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you this. Unless you intentionally put yourself in place to be at the mercy of God in his word, which that's what, you're, that's what you're doing. You're opening yourself up to him to be vulnerable before him and transformed by him in his word. Like that's an active resolution. Unless you do that, you are already at the mercy of the world. You don't need it. That, there's no on and off switch for that. That's just happening. We are constantly right now being conformed to the image of the world. The world. I mean, we're surrounded by a culture of individualism and hypersexuality and, and grind and grind and grind and be somebody and make somebody of yourself and take control of your life and be your own authority. And we are receiving this messaging constantly. And the only way, the only way you're going to resist it successfully is if you're at the mercy of God rather than at the mercy of the world. And so you might need to make some tough decisions like delete social media from your phone Get accountability. Wake up earlier. Rebecca and I were talking and we just have come to the conclusion that the only margin in our life that's free 
that's available for us to get in God's Word meaningfully is when we should be sleeping. Because that's all, we, that, like, everything else is booked after that. So we wake up earlier. And that's, what, that's how it has to be. But we're desperate. Maybe you need to ask your spouse to watch the kids so you can get away and read. I don't know what it is, but you need to maybe put some strict boundaries, some guidelines in place so that you can allow the Spirit of God to work through your time in the Word. One other exhortation. I know that when I say read your Bible, that sounds really exhausting. I know that might be like the emotion you feel like, oh, another task, oh, another thing, oh, another thing to like think about. I just want to turn my brain off. Look, why is it that when we go on vacation, we come back and by Monday, morning, by Monday at lunch, we just feel like we've been hit by a bus? Why does that happen like to every single one of us after a week off? It's because what we, we don't need disengagement kind of rest from life. That's not the kind of rest that's going to actually build within us something resilient and powerful. What we need is daily rest in God. That's what's going to, that's what's going to heal us and renew us and send us. The real rest you need is soul rest. The real nourishment you need is soul nourishment. So look, life is tired. I know you're all tired. I get it. I'm there with you. But the wrong criteria for rest is not what's easy probably is the wrong criteria. It's probably not going to do, any, do much for you. But the right criteria to ask yourself is what does this rest produce? And the rest of God, the rest in his word, produces what does he promise? Peace I give you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives you peace, but my peace I give to you. So Citizens Church, Here's God's invitation for us, and it's legitimate. It's not like um, a conspiracy. It's not just pious language. Get caught up in the dance. You and I can actually get caught up in the dance of God himself. And the first step that we need to take is taking seriously his word and letting the Spirit do his task of renewing our hearts as our guide and our counselor. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.